Hello, everyone. Uh, the first reading um, we're going to read through today is on page five of your zines, and it's um, from Psalm chapter 85, uh, verses one to seven. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 46. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, then he said Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this passage on page six is perhaps my favorite uh, text in the entire Bible. Uh, and I, I hope I'm able to uh, convey something of why that is uh, in a moment. Um, I've been giving an ad hoc series here over the last 12 months um, titled The Doubter's Guide to Jesus, where we've been looking at different aspects of Jesus um, from these early sources. Uh, including teacher, uh, healer, messiah, judge of all the earth. And if you were here last week, uh, I did Jesus as friend of the sinners. Um, but I guess what I want to say in this final sermon of that Doubter's Guide to Jesus series is I'd give all of those themes up for today's theme. Jesus as Saviour. Now, I know for some, uh, that's a religious cliche. When do we ever use the word Saviour outside of religion or, you know, maybe we use it in square, uh, scare quotes, you know, someone's Saviour. So, um, 
Let me begin with a real-world, concrete, poignant example of what this is about. Now, it's a real-world example that some of you will have heard of. In fact, it took place right behind me in the rocks in 1788. Now, some of you will know that in 1785, the young man, Samuel Payton, 17 years of age, was sentenced to seven years transportation to the new penal colony of New South Wales. A couple of years later, in 1787, he found himself in the First Fleet. He'd been caught stealing a watch, and he got seven years to the other side of the world for it. And when he arrived here in January 1788, he was set to work as a stonemason, uh, building the hospital, lots of the buildings along that strip we call the rocks, uh, the governor's mansion, and, and so on. Within five months, Samuel Payton was caught again, stealing. According to the records, which my wife and I dug up from the New South Wales archives down the road, he was caught stealing a shirt, stockings, and a comb. The poor young man was promptly tried and sentenced on the Monday, and then on the Wednesday, 25th of June, 1788, he was led to the public gallows, 600 meters away, where the Four Seasons Hotel now stands, and in front of the entire colony, hanged. Now, Samuel Payton would be just another name in the convict log of the First Fleet. Were it not for a letter, he was allowed to write to his mother back in England. And the only reason we have a copy of this letter is that one of the First Fleet officers was amazed at the language a convict possessed. And so he copied it out in his own journals. Here's what Samuel Payton wrote to his mother. My dear mother, with what agony of soul do I dedicate the few last moments of my life to bid you an eternal adieu. Ere this hour tomorrow I shall have entered into an unknown and endless eternity. Too late I regret my inattention to your admonitions and feel myself sensibly affected by the remembrance of the many anxious moments you have passed on my account. For these and all my other transgressions, however great, I supplicate the divine forgiveness. And encouraged by the promises of that Savior who died for us all, I trust to receive that mercy in the world to come, which my offenses have deprived me of in this. Commend my soul to divine mercy. I bid you an eternal farewell, your unhappy dying son, Samuel Payton, Sydney Cove, 24, June, 1788. To my mind, far more remarkable than the language, as extraordinary as that is for a convict. It's the bittersweet hope this convict has that there's a chance for him in eternity that Jesus is the savior who died for us all, including someone like him.
Uh, friends, this, this is such a crucial aspect of the Christian faith. And my nervousness in approaching a sermon like this is, am I able to convey how central it is? And it's so crucial that actually in our records of Jesus' life, it's one of the first things we hear about him, that he is the saviour, right at his birth, actually. That famous Christmas story um, that I actually preached on Christmas Eve here um, declares these words. The Christmas message was, today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Right at the front of the whole story, he's declared with the title Savior. And the manger is like a preview over the whole story. I think I said this uh, Christmas Eve. The manger hints at where the whole thing is going. That this Savior, this Lord, has not come to conquer like another Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. He has come to humble himself as a savior. First in a manger, an animal feeding area. And ultimately, of course, at the end of the story, on a cross. But more than his title, did you know that his very name means savior? This is Matthew's Christmas story, the little detail tucked away in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Now you think, why is he called Jesus? Well, because he will save his people from, from their sins. Matthew just expects you to know a little bit of Aramaic and Hebrew, I'm afraid, right? Because uh, the word Jesus in the original language, is Yeshua, and that means the Lord saves. So whether it's his title or his very name, this idea of Savior is central to the narrative. He came to save us from the judgment due to our, as Matthew puts it, sins. Now, I know as soon as I say that, I've, of course, introduced another cliche, judgment. So let me say something about what I mean when I say savior from judgment. This notion of salvation from judgment highlights one of the most dramatic differences between Jesus' first century culture and our 21st century culture. In the first century, Jesus had quite a difficult time convincing people that God really loved them and really wanted to save them. Because first century culture had such a huge um, appreciation of God's righteousness and God's judgment, it was difficult for people to believe that God would save and love. Now, here's the thing. Partly as a result of the Christianization of Western culture, most people in our country, if they think of God at all, they think of God as overwhelmingly loving and merciful. We just assume that, and I reckon Jesus would have a very difficult time convincing us today that we're under judgment in the first place, that we have any sins to be saved from. 
But Jesus didn't teach that God loves us because we're lovable. No, Jesus taught things like this, that our craving for wealth at the expense of the poor is damnable. He literally said it was damnable. He also said, loving the stuff of creation, which is most Aussies, while ignoring the creator himself, is virtually the definition of a sinner. Or very succinctly, Jesus taught that the standard by which we are all to be judged isn't, am I better than my neighbor? But have I loved God with all my heart and loved my neighbor as myself? It's only against this background that we can possibly understand this central theme of Christianity, that by title and by name, Jesus is the Savior. He came to save us from the judgment for all our sins for our lack of love. And this is clearest, uh, not in the birth story of the manger, nor even in Jesus' teaching, but actually in his death. Which brings me to my favorite passage of scripture. Picture the scene in this text. Well, I've made it easy because there's a lovely Bruegel painting for you. Three, at least three, naked, bleeding criminals. And a crowd has gathered to watch this Roman execution. Crucifixions were always in a very public place so that it could be a deterrent, a little bit like hanging in the 18th century. And all the focus of the crowd zeroes in on Jesus and his inability to save. This is the through line of the passage. I wonder if you noticed it when it was read. The people stood watching. The rulers, these are the religious leaders, sneered at him. They said, he saved. There's the word. Others let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. But then the Roman soldiers, these are the ones with the hammers and the nails in hands. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. A statement of his crime, the claim that he was the king. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Imagine it's the criminal over this side of Jesus. Looks at Jesus and says, aren't you meant to be the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Save, save, save. The whole thing revolves around the thought. What kind of savior can't save himself? But then you notice... The centerpiece of, of the passage is that what everyone else saw as proof Jesus couldn't save himself or anyone, one man thought was the very sign 
that he was the saviour. Because we're told in the passage, the other criminal, this is the criminal over there, rebuked him, that is the criminal, the other side of Jesus. So there's a shouting match now going on. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve, he says. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, looking at Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I find those words so remarkable because Jesus didn't look like he owned a kingdom. I mean, I mean no disrespect to Jesus, but kingly was the last thing he looked. Naked, bleeding, dying. But somehow this criminal has spotted that this is the king, that this is the savior. And so maybe there's a chance for me, he's thinking. I love the simplicity of the request. There's nothing deeply religious or ritual about it. He's just saying, Jesus, remember this face. (laughs) When you come back, is there a place for me? Can you remember this face? It's so humble and simple. But even more than that, I love Jesus' reply. The um, extravagance, the lavishness of the reply. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's think about this. We often think that what religion says is live a good life, say your prayers, go to church, do the right thing, and maybe you'll get, you know, welcomed into paradise. Yeah? And indeed, that is how a lot of the world religions teach. But Christianity teaches this. The opposite. Christianity teaches that someone can simply say to Jesus, remember me, is there a place for me? And Jesus will instantly, fully, completely say, yes, there's a place for you. This is instant, full, undeserved forgiveness. This criminal just asked for a little corner of the kingdom when Jesus comes back. Jesus says, no, no, don't worry about that. You will be with me in paradise. Such forgiveness. This scene highlights the central meaning of Jesus' death. He came to save people like that criminal. By dying on their behalf. Everyone else interpreted Jesus' unwillingness to save himself as proof that he was no kind of savior at all. But the truth of the matter was, it was precisely by not saving himself that he became the savior of us. He gave his life on a cross to bear into himself the judgment of the judgment day. And so it's kind of fitting that there's this ominous darkness we're told about. Perhaps some read this and think, oh, that sounds like a myth. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three for the sun stopped shining. But let me tell you, we have a mid-first century non-Christian writer called Thallus 
who mentions an eclipse coinciding with the death of Jesus. It's not a fairy tale. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And it just remained dark. You put yourself in that situation. I often find myself, as I reflect on this passage, which I do often, thinking, I wonder if the criminal in that dark moment, as he watched Jesus become more agitated and then call out and breathe his last, I wonder if the criminal thought to himself, my goodness, that was for me. That's how he just forgave me. It was condemnation for him, mercy for me, hell for him. Paradise for me. And that is exactly what the young Samuel Payton meant when he said 1,800 years later, encouraged by the promises of that Savior who died for us all, I trust to receive that mercy in the world to come which my offences have deprived me of in this. Samuel Payton's execution uh, made its way into two First Fleet journals, which I have read. And one of them describes it as a terrible, squally winter's day, 25th June, 1788. Bucketing down, squalling, and at 11.30, Samuel Payton was up on the gallows, five, six hundred metres from here. And according to one of the journals, gave, and I quote, an eloquent and well-directed speech admitting guilt and asking forgiveness. Another journal says he died penitent, which is an old-fashioned word for trusting in the Saviour. Christianity has always declared that Jesus died on a cross for petty criminals like Samuel Payton, for Jewish rebels like the criminal next to Jesus on the cross, for neglectful materialists, for thankless atheists, for the moralistic and smug, for anyone who would turn to God for mercy. Jesus is the Savior. I've been doing this long enough to know for some You got more questions? You want to explore this a bit more before doing anything dramatic? Great. I'm running that Life of Jesus course here. I'm not sure of the dates, but I'm sure that I'm doing it here. I'd love to see you. We'll just take it more slowly. But it's possible that, that some are here, you know, you haven't lived up to your own standards, let alone the Almighty's. And this thought that Christ died to take away the punishment we all deserve, 
is attractive to you, is compelling to you, and you want to say, Jesus, remember me, or something like that. Forgive me. I notice in the service, Justin is about to lead us in what they call a confession. Not a confession to Justin, but a confession to God. I, I just put, it, put this to you. If you're not sure if you're a Christian, but actually you want this forgiveness that is guaranteed because of Jesus, why not make this moment of confession your moment of saying something like, Jesus, remember me.